It's lovely to be here with you this morning. On the, the 19th of February 2018, there was a huge life event that occurred uh, for myself and for Emily. And that was the date that we packed up our car and drove 400 or so miles to begin a new life here in the northeast of England. So here's a picture of us looking absolutely shattered. And I did, I did double-check this with Emily. That was okay to show this picture, okay? Uh, absolutely shattered after getting up super early to pack the car to say goodbye to our flat in Dorset where we lived for our first uh, few months um, of married life. And so last Sunday we marked our fifth-year anniversary of us living here as a couple in the northeast of England. Now, um, I and we absolutely love living here. The northeast of England is beautiful. The people are fantastic, Right? Thank you. Fantastic. That's good. But, as you can probably tell from my accent, I am not a Geordie. And for most of my life, 21 years or so, I lived and grew up in, in South Wales. My sister's actually here this morning. I didn't, I didn't warn her that I was putting this picture up of me and my sister here. Okay. And this is actually me on my stag do. Where they got me to uh, dress up as a daffodil and run around as we were playing rugby on the beach. That, what, what else do Welsh people do on a stag do? It's the most stereotypical thing ever, isn't it? <laughs> For me, South Wales, from an earthly sense, South Wales, that's my home. I think part of the reason I love the Northeast so much is because the places and the people remind me so much of Wales. Though I love living here, and, and I always say that for me, Wales is my home. And so when people ask me where I'm from, if we're on holiday or away from Newcastle, to answer that question, I will always say, well, I'm from South Wales, but I now live in Newcastle. I, I always have to mention Wales because it feels like it's a part of my identity. It's a major part of who I am. And though I live in the Northeast and I love the Northeast, love the people and the places and the culture, if you cut me open, as it were, I would bleed Wales. I'm Welsh and hugely proud to be so, despite the rugby score yesterday. <laughs> And my family are here this morning, and I, and I love it when they're here, but every time they, they come, it does remind me of how much I miss Wales and the people and the places and my family and my friends. In an earthly sense, Wales for me, that, that's my home, and I'm always looking for any excuse to go and visit there. It's the place that I identify with the most. And the people that we're going to read about this morning, they are also a people with a distinct identity, but we've seen over the last few weeks they're struggling with that identity. They've been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they're now traveling to a new land, the land that's been promised to them by the God who had saved them. And these, these people are, of course, the people of Israel, uh, the Israelites whose story that we've been following over the last few weeks in the Old Testament book of Numbers. But we've actually seen, as we followed their journey, we followed their story, that they've had several moments of identity crisis, I suppose, really, moments where they fail to understand who they are. Moments where they've failed to understand that they are God's people, that they have committed to follow him and trust him, and that he loves them and that he will provide all they need. Yet the people, several times as we've read, they've doubted, they've slipped up, they've complained a lot, and in some ways they've thrown back in God's face all that he's done for them. And then as we look at Numbers 25 today, they're currently camped in there. Of course, I'm a geography um, person, geography background, so two maps on the screen, of course. They're currently camped here in Sitem, only a couple of miles east of the Promised Land. They're almost there. 
And this is eventually where in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, they will journey from into the promised land. This is the place. And they're encamped there in our passage that we're about to read in a moment. And whilst there, temptation comes their way. And it is this temptation that causes another identity crisis. Their identity is that they are God's people. But this temptation that we're going to read about this morning, it leads them to question that commitment to God. Will they be lured astray by the false gods around and the idols and the images of the local cultures? Their identity is that they are God's people who are married to him, as it were. Verses like this from Jeremiah chapter 31 uh, from the Old Testament make this clear. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. This is the covenant that he's talking about that we're going to be reading about this morning. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Just like in a marriage, the couple are to be committed to each other and each other alone, yet Israel seems to struggle with that idea, struggling with wandering eyes, effectively. They failed to listen and obey the God who had saved them from slavery, who had promised them abundant blessing, including all the wonders and the riches of the promised land, a land that God had promised to give them on oath. And they, instead of looking towards that secure and that assured hope, that secure and assured joy, which is only a couple of miles away, they could pretty much see it, they look to what else is on offer. As we shall see, they take a hold of the pleasures that are on offer now and reject what God soon will be giving to them. The wants and the desires of the world around them became too much for them to ignore or look away from, and so they indulge and they compromise and they hold on to the pleasures of the now, which are temporary, not of what was going to be in the promised land. So let's read Numbers 25 together. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Numbers 25, if not. You can just listen to me as I read it to you. Numbers chapter 25. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the man began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. People ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of you of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. An Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And when Phinehas saw, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelites into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right to the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. And the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman was put to death was Cosbi, daughter of Zer, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. 
The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. They treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the pure incident involving their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. This morning, I'd like to speak uh, about three things. Uh, firstly, seduction. The title on my, in my Bible said, Israel seduced by Moab. Seduction. Why do we look away? Why do we look away? Secondly, Savior. What is God's response when we look away? And then Spirit. How can we look forward? It's all be made clear as we go. Why do we look away? What is God's response? And how can we look forward? Let's begin then with seduction. Why do we look the other way? Why do we look away from the only one who says to, who says to us, can ultimately satisfy? Why do we look away and look towards the things we know ultimately will not? Why do we look to the created things rather than our creator? Why are the things of this world and the pleasures of this world so attractive? And I suppose our first question might, might be, why did the Israelites do this? What was attractive about what they were doing? Why would they turn their back on the God that they worship to worship idols? Now this chapter that we've read is actually a really pivotal moment in the history of Israel because it's where we're introduced to the behavior that pretty much plagues Israel all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. And that is the sin of idolatry. Idolatry can be defined, this is according to Webster, the definition of idolatry is the worship of idols or excessive devotion or reverence for some person or thing. Broadly speaking, an idol is anything that replaces the one true the most prevalent form of idolatry in Bible times was the worship of images that were thought to embody various pagan deities. And from the beginning, God's covenant with his people was based on exclusive worship of him and him alone. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Part of the marriage contract simply said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. God and his people were married together, in effect. And our passage here is one of the first instances where they commit adultery against God with a false god, a god called Baal. And as you read the Old Testament, you will see that that name pops up many, many times because there are many false gods called Baal in the cultures around Israel. And in our passage, Israel desires Baal over Yahweh, over God, and they break their agreement and they break their marriage bond with him. Let me read verses 1 to 3 again. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. While Israel was staying in Sittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. He invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The word there, uh, yoked, is a key word here. Um, a yoke was or is a, is a wooden cross piece. It was fastened over the neck uh, of two animals, and it was attached then to a plow or to a cart. And a yoke allows two animals to share a load and to pull it together. Uh, and yokes were used uh, in Bible times primarily with, with bulls or oxen to plow fields uh, or to pull wagons. But the Bible uses the word yoke 
uh, often as an analogy for either the weight or the burden or the difficulty of a task. It also is used um, by Paul in the New Testament when he, he uses the image of the yoke to encourage believers to not marry unbelievers, to be un- unequally yoked is the phrase that he uses. And Paul uses that analogy in the New Testament because of passages like ours this morning where it says that Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, a false god of the people of Moab. And they essentially committed adultery with this false god by breaking their, commandment, their commitment sorry, with God. Now, I was thinking this week, why was idolatry so attractive? Because all of the cultures around Israel, they were all um, worshipping idols and images. That was the idea. Why was idolatry so attractive? Well, it seems odd to us that we would so easily reject the God who had saved them from slavery, provided miraculous food from heaven, he crossed them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and a whole host more miraculous things that he did. Why would they be attracted to other gods? What would make them turn away? And what would be the benefits? Well, firstly, the worship of idols in the culture of the time was linked with worshipping the personification of natural forces that directly affected the people's physical and economic well-being, so pretty much the ground and its produce. So for this culture that was around uh, Israel, the culture of Moab, in this particular part of Moab where the Israelites were encamped, Baal was to believe that, believed to be the god of fertility. So worshipping him would bring fertility to the land. The idea was that Baal died in the autumn and rose in the spring. That was the idea. And so through worshipping Baal, the land would, bring, would be fertile in the spring. So that's one reason why. Economic kind of prosperity through the worshipping of gods. Because seemingly they thought that they controlled the natural forces. Secondly, idolatry provided tangible symbols to which people could relate. Images that were made of various materials, wood and stone and and metals, and they provided a sort of instrument for worship. Now, interestingly, Israel is different. This was absolutely forbidden by Israel's God, to have no images of Yahweh. The reason for that is because the people were meant to be the image. All the other cultures around had images to worship. Israel is meant to be different because the idea was that Israel were God's image bearers to the world. And so they, the world would worship God and get closer to God through the witness and the example of Israel. That was the idea. If you read the Old Testament, you find out it doesn't go so well. Another reason for the appeal of idolatry was because it led to the belief in many gods, what we call polytheism, which was seemed to be more enlightened Many cultures believe that, as they do today in many respects, that pluralism of deities denotes a culture that is tolerant. And that seemed appealing to the Israelites because they wanted to fit in. And then also, like modern people today, the Israelites would have felt social pressure to conform to idolatrous worship. And they also thought that compromising on this would perhaps build friendships with cultures that may lead to strong alliances or to more riches or more social influence. But the most potent attraction is what we've read about this morning. Because idolatrous religion at that time was often blended with various kinds of sensual stimulation, with the idea of fulfillment of basic human need. Many of these cultures and these religions had temple prostitutes, and the practice of the religion were often linked with performing erotic and sensual activities, all in the name of the worship of that supposed deity. 
And it's these practices that the Israelite men attempted to perform in Numbers 25 that we've read. And as we've read, they gave in. The people are several miles away from the promised land. They are almost there. They can pretty much see it. But instead of looking to what's on the horizon, to the safe and the secure and the bountiful place and inheritance that's promised by them, uh, to them by their creator and their savior and their king, they look around to see what else is on offer. And we too can all fall into these types of temptations. Maybe not central activities with the, with the false religions of Moab, okay? But there may be things that turn your head and mind from the land that is to come, from the eternal perspective, focusing on here and now, not on the heavenly things. Living for the now, living for the, for the pleasure of now, not being content, not looking towards what's on the horizon, not looking to the heavenly things. What for you is your bail? What for you frequently and consistently turns your head away from God and the things of God? His plans for you or his ways? What in your life do you find seeking to seduce you, to bring you away? What pressures are you under, like the Israel were, to compromise? your faith for the sake of something. It may be the reputation in school or in work or for financial gain. What are the social pressures are you under currently to hide or even reject or even leave your faith? Place yourself where the Israelites were. They were not far from the promised land and as a Christian, we are promised a land too, a place with God forever enjoying his presence. That's where we're looking to, that's where we're going. We're traveling through this world and we're ending up there. As we live and as we serve and as we wait, what is turning your gaze away? Who or what is catching your eye? Who is influencing you? Who is seeking to pull you away? To cause you to think differently about God and his ways or about scripture? Are your priorities the same as God's? Are your priorities the same as God's? Dr. Larry Crabb is a Christian writer. He writes this. Until our passion for finding God is deeper than any other passion, we will arrange life according to our taste and not God's. Until our passion for finding God is deeper than any other passion, we will arrange life according to our taste and not God's. What arranging or rearranging do we need to do in our lives today? What is your attitude, perhaps, to sin as well? Are there people influencing you in a negative way when it comes to your faith? Are there places that you go that you know won't be good for you because of temptation? What are the things that you're finding hard to turn your eyes away from? What do you spend most of your time looking at, or who do you spend most of your time with? Now, I ask that question not not to say that we all need to head off into monasteries and nunneries and lock ourselves away from the world, because that's not biblical either. Um, not talking about removing ourselves from the world. 1 Corinthians 5.10 will tell us that that's not what we're meant to do. The world needs the gospel, and the world needs the salt and the light of the church and the good news about Jesus. And Jesus did not hide himself from away from the world either. But we do need to recognize that Satan, our enemy, is always looking for ways to cause us to stumble and to fall and to doubt and ultimately to walk away. 
Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he is a lion seeking to devour. And so we need to be alert. What is stopping you from being alert? What at the moment is testing your faithfulness to God? And what, what changes could you make to avoid falling into that temptation? Is it deleting certain apps or getting somewhere, someone to, to be accountable to you and help you put software on your devices? Is it avoiding spending time with that particular person because you know that temptation to sin is too strong? Is it avoiding a particular place or deleting a certain subscription? I don't know what it is for you. But just take a moment now with God. What, what is that thing? When it comes to temptation of sin, drastic measures are not out of the question. It was events like these that stopped the whole generation of Israelites entering into all that God had ready for them. All that was ready for them, all the blessings and all the experiences that he wanted them to embrace and enjoy, they chose to doubt and they chose to cheat and they chose to consistently turn away and lack faith. And they never stepped out and in fact they stepped back and they looked around. What is stopping you from entering into what God has for you? What is holding you back from taking hold of the spiritual blessings that he's given to you in Christ? Are there things in your life that need looking at? and plucking out so that you can grow and move forward in your Christian life? What are you yoked to and you don't want to be, but you're struggling to break free? If you aren't feeling yoked to Jesus, then what is it? Be honest with yourself. It may be guilt or shame. It may be lust or porn or alcohol. It may be abuse of a partner or difficulties with anger. It may be lack of forgiveness towards a family member or a friend. Maybe pride or arrogance towards someone. Maybe the inability to say, I'm sorry. Maybe gluttony. Maybe hatred. Maybe struggling to control finances and seeking after material things and possessions. Or academic achievement for the sake of it. It may simply just be unbelief. A lack of trust in God and a willingness to say, yes, Lord, I'm for you and I'm going to step forward for you. Is there something that God is speaking to you about this morning? If there is, speak with someone today who you know, who you trust, that can share this burden with you. Don't let sin or disbelief or anything else hold you back from moving forward in your Christian life. You will not grow anymore as a Christian until these things are brought out into the open. What does God want you to reveal and deal with today? I said earlier that this was the first introduction to the problem that would characterize and plague and identify Israel for the next several centuries. They did not root out and destroy it at source. What sin have you recognized that needs dealing with now? Root it out now while it's a shrub, rather than let it fester and have to deal with it when it's a tree. Root it out now when it's a shrub, as opposed to leaving it fester and having to deal with it when it's a tree. Do the hard work now, and I'll say it again. Until our passion for finding God is deeper than any other passion, we will arrange our life according to our taste, not God's. What arranging do we need to do this morning? So God responds. How does he respond? Well, he responds in, in righteous judgment. The people, they've once again rejected him. They've broken their agreement with him. They've put other things and desires above him. And so we've read that God is angry with his people. 
And Moses is instructed to put to death the leaders who seemingly have approved of this behavior. And it says in verse 4, even their bodies are to be exposed in daylight. And this was to be a sign of shame, that their bodies were not to be buried as a sign of shame for what they did, but also as a deterrent to the people to not do what they've been commanded not to do. And then doing all of this, an Israelite man named Zimri flagrantly disobeys Moses and it seems proudly brings in a Midianite woman, a daughter of one of the chiefs called Cosby. And the Midianites lived uh, in that region at that time as well. We read that in Numbers 22 last week. And Zimri takes her into his tent or into a tent to have sex with her. Now, the translation of this is disputed. And some commentators believe that some scribes have actually softened what may have actually happened. Some manuscripts actually suggest that perhaps Zimri may not have taken Cosby into any tent or even into his tent, but into the tent of meeting itself. Into effect where God's presence was. Now that's disputed, but it's possible. I would in some ways explain Phineas's fairly extreme actions. Now, no matter how that, exactly how it happened, Zimri is clearly unashamed in his behavior. And he flagrantly commits a sinful act in front of all the people. And then seeing this, we're introduced to Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron and the son of Eleazar, and he was the high, um, who was the high priest at the time. And because of the clear dishonor and the disregard for the name of God, Phinehas takes a spear and he kills both Zimri and Cosby, perhaps whilst in the act of intercourse, it seems to suggest in the text. Let me read the section again together because we're going to look at a few elements of it. I'll read from verse 6. An Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand and followed Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. And the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But this, those who died in the plague, number 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore tell them I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God, I made atonement for the Israelites. Verse 13 says that Phinehas, the priest, he made atonement for the Israelites. Atonement simply means to cover over. So Phinehas, through his actions, covered over the sin of the people. And it was through this action of Phinehas that God's judgment on the people ceases. And during the episode of sin, it seems, going on, God has seemingly sent a plague to punish the people for their adultery. And that's mentioned in verse 9. But the plague was stopped following Phineas's act of atonement. The priest Phineas provides atonement through the slaughter, not of a substitute animal, but in this instance, through the sinners themselves. It's interesting that it's the priest who does the sacrificing here. Phineas is, in a sense, a minor picture of the Lord Jesus in that he fulfilled the role of a priest and out of true zeal and honor for his father God, he made atonement for us. But it, and he covered over our sins through the sacrifice of himself. But he didn't sacrifice animals. He didn't sacrifice the sinners. He sacrificed himself. 
through Jesus, our sin that separated us from God can be covered over. It can be atoned for. And it can be cleared away through believing in Jesus and following him. And just like Phinehas was given that covenant of peace that we've just read about, that would last for all generations for his family, so Jesus offers us complete and eternal peace with God for our days here in this world and in the world to come. The question is, have you taken hold of that peace? You see, when sin occurs in God's mercy and God's grace, there is atonement offered and peace is offered. Though judgment must be done, God always provides a way of mercy. And in our passage, it was through the actions of a priest, through the sacrifice of blood, the judgment ceased, and the people's adultery was covered over. And the gospel message is simply this, that Jesus Christ came and died, taking the punishment for our wrongdoing, all of our adultery, all of the things that turn our face away, all of the things that we seek will complete us and satisfy us, He took all of that Baal worship that we do day in and day out of looking away from God all that time and he took it and he nailed it to a tree. He died in our place and he took it into the grave, buried it. And if we believe in who Jesus is and what he's done and seek to live God's way and follow him, we can be forgiven and there will be no condemnation for us. Our sin is cleared and covered over by the blood of Christ. We can live a new life in Jesus, the life we were created to live because Jesus rose from the dead. I heard an amen. Thank you. Amen, indeed. If you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Christ, make today that day. Today you can be assured of a place with God forever. You can be assured of a place to find peace, a place where sin does not define you, but Christ does. You can receive a new heart and a new life, the real purpose and meaning of life restored, the relationship we were all created to forget, um, for, for us to enjoy. We can receive that through Christ. Give your life to Jesus this morning and be saved from the brokenness and the waywardness of life. Phineas, it says in our passage, he had real zeal for the honor of God. And it says in, in that, um, that those that honor God in Scripture, it says he will honor. Phineas had real zeal and for God's honor. And Scripture said in 1 Samuel that those who honor God, he will honor. Christians, this morning, are you being challenged at the moment in your life to stand up for God? To stand up for God in your school or in your workplace or in your sports team or your work team or in your family or in your friendship groups or in your university course. Stand up for God. Our encouragement in 1 Corinthians 16 is this. Be on guard and stand firm in the faith. Be courageous and be strong. Keep standing. Keep going. Be strong. Stand firm. God will honor you. may not be in this life, but I tell you, when he sees you in glory, he will honor you for standing firm in this world. Phineas is remembered for his zeal of God, and in fact, he's even mentioned in Psalm 106, if you want to read it in your own time. Whereas Zimri and Cosby, who are named later on in our passage, they're remembered for their sinful act, for turning away from God and dishonoring his name. Will you be remembered for standing for God, no matter the cost to yourself, to your reputation, or to your salary, or to your job, or to your home, to your pension, or your work or life opportunities? your relationships with people, 
Will you be remembered for standing for God no matter the cost? Finally then, as I close, how do we keep looking forward? Because I've done a lot of challenging applications here. But how do I look forward, Joel? How do I keep looking forward? How do I fix my eyes on Jesus, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? How do we focus on the eternal and not on the temporary? How do I focus on heaven, not on earth? On the promised land, not on the temptations that are around me? How do I live in some ways for the not yet, for now? Are we storing up treasures here on earth and not in heaven? What Numbers 25 should highlight for us is to do these things. We can't do it on our own. Because we're all like the Israelites in our passage today. We're all struggling with and often falling into temptation. We can all have moments of unfaithfulness. But this isn't a moment to be like, well, yeah, Joel, that's true. So we're going we're gonna to get it wrong. So I put the effort in. We are going to slip up. So I put the effort in. But God says in First Peter, be holy for I am holy. That's the standard. But the beauty of the gospel message is that we don't do it alone. We are not sinners if you're in Christ. We're not sinners, we're saints. That is what the New Testament calls you. That is your identity. You are a saint, you are a holy one, you are set apart for God. We need to live by that identity. But instead of finding strength and the ability to overcome sin and temptation by ourselves, we need to continually look at that Phinehas-like victor. We need to keep looking at Jesus and we need to draw our strength from Jesus and from the resources and the nourishment that he provides. Because it's Jesus that provides the way of atonement through his death and his resurrection. It's through Jesus that we receive a peace that passes all understanding. He is the great high priest who gave us a peace for now, today, and forever. A peace about whatever comes our way. But that's a peace that we as Christians need to intentionally take hold of every single day. It's Jesus who says in Matthew chapter 11 that his yoke is easy and light. His yoke is easy and light. And that's because he shoulders the burden with us. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and sufferings. He's been through all the battles and he's finished the race. And because he has, he can come alongside us and he can help us finish it too. That's the idea. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Be yoked to me and I will bring you through. It's Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and help us through the difficulties and the trials of life. It's he who can help us overcome temptation and seduction by the world. So how do we look forward? Cling to Jesus. Amen. Cling to Jesus. Cling to the Spirit. Keep remembering who you are in Christ. Remember what's coming. Don't focus on, as Paul calls it in the New Testament, the garbage that we often waste our time thinking about. And focus on Jesus and think about the eternal. Keep looking forward. Look to the horizon. Store up treasures in heaven and not here. Live for the identity and the citizen that you are now. Live for the kingdom of God. Live for the eternal because when we get to the end, folks, Nothing else will matter except what we've done with and for Jesus. Nothing. Nothing else will matter except what you've done with and for Jesus. Nothing. The New Testament idea is that it will be burned up. 
and the stuff that lasts and is eternal will stay. And everything else that we think about often is garbage will be burned away. That's the idea. Nothing else will matter except what you've done with and for Jesus. Nothing. Don't be seduced by what is being offered here and now. And don't think you're in a safe position either, or we're in a safe position, where we think nothing will turn our head. I have friends who sadly have had their heads turned away, and I never thought they would. But they have. Their heads have turned away. It breaks my heart. Don't think we'll be in a position that the roaring lion, Satan, as it says in 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 5, sorry, that lion is there waiting to devour. Keep asking God for the strength to keep looking forward, to focus on the gospel and focus on Jesus. The history of Israel is a sad chronicle, really, of idol worship. Idol worship, punishment, restoration and forgiveness, back to idolatry. That was the cycle in the Old Testament all the way through. That cycle takes place over and over again to the point where Ezekiel says in uh, chapter 36 of the book of Ezekiel, he hones in on what the ultimate problem is, the ultimate problem of the human heart. And what does it say in Ezekiel 36? I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you. Ultimately, the Christian faith is about getting a new heart. We can't do this stuff live this life without God. We can't overcome seduction and temptation without God. We can't. We need the help and the strength of God's Spirit. We need God's Spirit to give us a new heart through trusting in Christ. So we need to keep living in that identity. And we also need each other, folks. We need the church. We need community. We need accountability. We need to be vulnerable with each other. Most un-British thing I've said all morning. We need to be vulnerable with each other. Find people, find brothers and sisters in the church who you can come alongside and say, I'm really struggling with this. Please pray with me, help me. To summarize then, as I finish, keep your eyes on Jesus and the eternal. And the band are going to lead us now in worship. But let me just, as we reflect, just maybe perhaps close your eyes and just reflect on these truths. What's seeking to turn your eyes away from Jesus and the, and, and the promised land that is ahead? What is stopping you from standing firm? What is holding you back from taking hold of all the blessings that God has for you? Jesus has sent his spirit to battle and overcome that temptation for us. Our job is to rest on him and his easy yoke as he shoulders our burdens. What is God saying to us this morning? What rearranging do we need to do in our life? What are the things that I need, I and we need to let go of this morning? To be put back in their place and put God at the, at the center of our lives again. What's God's Spirit saying to us this morning? Let's respond now in worship. Thanks, Rachel.